G'day and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast coming to you from Melbourne, Australia broadcast from the studios of 3CR your only radio left my name is Susanna Duffy in this episode we'll look at some appalling sexist outrages learn about some name changes for birds consider the crisis of truth or rather of lies hear about a book that took 28 years to read and delve into the history of a popular anti-fascist song. But first, when it comes to indefinite detention of refugees, it appears that Australian law doesn't matter. Indefinite immigration detention is unlawful, rules the High Court. The High Court is the highest court in the Australian judicial system. The functions of the High Court are to interpret and to apply the law of Australia, to decide cases of special federal significance and to hear appeals by special leave from federal, state and territory governments. So the High Court has ruled that indefinite immigration detention is unlawful. Now the police want to influence immigration policy and you can blame that entirely on Peter Dutton for a retired policeman. He doesn't understand the most basic tenets of our legal system. See, put simply so that even politicians from the far north can understand The plan is that we, the people, elect parliaments. Once the parliament has been decided, the party with the greatest number of members forms government and they make laws. They then vote on whether laws are passed and what those laws will regulate. This system works reasonably well if you have people with brains getting elected, though this isn't necessarily a foregone result. Dutton has emboldened the inspector plods throughout our wide brown land to believe that they are the policy makers. Uh, No, 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 the police enforce the law. They don't enact it. It's a basic lesson in civics, really. The police are talking about repunishing immigration detainees. This is particularly stupid and it's particularly wrong. The detainees Dutton is so concerned about have already done their time, meaning that their debt to society has been paid. I know they're foreigners, yeah, but still, if you've served your sentence, that's considered enough, even if you're a foreigner. Australia doesn't run parallel legal systems, or at least we hope not. If you're convicted and you serve your sentence then you're free to go after you're released, even if you're a foreigner. Dutton wants them to be re-detained. He appears to not understand that the High Court of Australia has ruled that further detention is unlawful. That means that the government has no choice but to release them because the High Court said so. Instead of being locked up again, they should be compensated. 
their indefinite detention was unlawful and the reason that they're still in detention is because successive governments ignored the fact that many had nowhere else to go, either through statelessness or because if sent back to their home country, they would have been subjected to draconian punishment or death. What's particularly disappointing is the way that the Albanese government has so abjectly accepted Dutton's scaremongering and his confected moral panic. Yes, rapists and murderers exist within Australia's population. If they have served their sentences, they are free to rejoin society, even if they're foreigners. But with Dutton, make enough noise, and Albanese and his government will break with judicial sense and cave in to the populists. And now police department heads are adding their voices to all this. It's highly inappropriate, and that's a mild way of putting it. But here we are, looking to lead the disaffected and those who still cling to Australia's outdated and embarrassing past mistakes regarding immigration and race. And now I see, even those detainees without criminal convictions will be fitted with ankle bracelets. Oh golly, you can't be too careful with foreigners, can you? The Attorney General appears to have no opinion. Look, he must know the matter will end up in the High Court again, and still he doesn't provide sensible counsel. So what will we have? Another rerun of a High Court decision? And Dutton making a loud noise again? And then another round of appeasement? Don't think that getting rid of Morrison has saved us. 3CR Just how low can Piers Morgan go? Not much of a question and no prizes for a good answer. But I'll tell you how low he can go to get a few dollars. He signed up to interview again. Those dreadful, dreadful men... Andrew and Tristan Tate. Now, those two brothers have only recently left the confines of their jail cells, and both of them are still currently awaiting trial in Romania after being charged with multiple human traffic charges and multiple rape charges. Why should they even get airtime? Why should I even mention them? I don't know why I do it except to torture myself. Both of these brothers call themselves influencers. Andrew Tate says that women belong in the home. He says they are a man's property. He's also noted his preference to date women exclusively between the ages of 18 and 19 because only then can he make an imprint on them. He's also said that women should bear some responsibility if they're being raped. Now, this is the second time that Morgan has interviewed these brothers. Would anyone even watch it? Oh, I'm sure there will be people to watch it. I'm sure Piers Morgan will get some money out of this. I think it's just absolutely disgusting, but, you know, what can I do? 
And by the way, it is 2023. Surely we can see images of women, particularly our state premiers, not done in a sexualised manner, not done naked with pixelation, of course. Why was Jacinda Allen portrayed in this manner? But of course, what else can we expect from the Herald Sun? Dan Andrews served as Premier of Victoria for 3,217 days. I never saw a cartoon of him naked. (laughs) Have you? I'm not laughing. It's not funny. It's bloody disgusting. Well, if you weren't turned off by the Herald Sun before, I reckon it's about time you were. 3CR a little lighter for you. It's about a book. Have you read Finnegan's Wake? Come on, tell the truth. Hands up if you've read Finnegan's Wake. Probably the most difficult book that James Joyce ever wrote. Possibly one of the most difficult books to read in the world. It just goes on and on in a language that I think Joyce just made up for that book. Lots of allusions, lots of Irish words and puns. Lots of puns in multiple languages. Yeah, not for the faint of heart. Joyce wrote it over 17 years and it, oh, I almost finished it. But I had to put it down. It's like a dream sequence. But there must be people in the world who have actually read it. Or maybe, like me, just started it. Ploughed a bit of the way through but couldn't finish it. It's on my to-do list. So, one day, one day. But there's a book club in California. And they've been taking their time reading it. Because, as I said, it's not easy. But they have finished it. It only took them 28 years. So they started in 1995, showed up for monthly meetings at a local library, ended up in those lockdown years meeting on Zoom, and they reached the final page at the end of last month. So it took them 28 years. So it took them longer to read than it took Joyce to write it. I hope they got some pleasure out of it by the time they'd finished. It would have been fun anyway. I'm sure they made some friends. But what can they read next? What can possibly come up to par with James Joyce Finnegan's Wake? And some little light news about names. What's in a name? The decision to no longer name birds after people in North America has ignited a wide debate within the scientific community over naming conventions. In recent years, eponyms, or scientific names based on real or fictional people, have made headlines for carrying negative connotations. Back in 2020, for example, the American Ornithological Society switched the name of the Macown's Longspur, which is a sparrow-like bird, to the thick-billed Longspur because it had been originally named after a Confederate Army general. 
and in 2022, Asian Carp was rebranded as Kopi to make it more racially sensitive. Now, that same ornithological society has announced it's renaming dozens more birds in order to remove harmful historical associations, and new names will be based on habitats and trays. Birds facing a rebrand include the Alderbent Shearwater, named after slave owner John Alberton, and the Scots Oriole, named after the controversial US Civil War general Winfield Scott. Many scientists are also calling for rebranding to stretch to plants and animals. For example, there's a brown beetle called the Adophthalmus hitleri, as in Hitler, named after the Nazi leader. And there's a butterfly, Hypopta Mussolini, named after guess who. It all seems like a good idea to me. What do you reckon? 3CR In her book, Lying in Politics, Hannah Arendt said, The deliberate falsehood and the outright lie, used as legitimate means to achieve political ends, have been with us since the beginning of recorded history. Truthfulness has never been counted among the political virtues, and lies have always been regarded as justifiable tools in political dealing. But we should remember also that a lot of their lies are really needless, pointless and inconsequential. But they do often regard serious policy matters. I mean silly, childish, inconsequential things. Perhaps we're just used to lies. After all, we've put up with quite a few over the years, haven't we? Worldwide lies. Devastating lies. We remember Watergate when it revealed that Nixon knew about break-ins to the Democratic Party headquarters and he directed the FBI not to investigate it and he went on to lie about it and lie about it some more and then lie again. Well, of course, he had to resign. But the biggest lie I can think of of recent years is the invasion of Iraq. I don't like to think of Australia's role in this most catastrophic of decisions, but no one in the coalition of the willing escapes judgment. George Bush and Dick Cheney knowingly lied about Hussein's possession and development of weapons of mass destruction, WMD. Bush said Hussein had a massive stockpile of biological weapons. Former CIA deputy head Michael Morell, one of the intelligence briefers for Bush, admits now that Cheney fabricated claims about Hussein's ability to acquire or reconstitute nuclear weapons. And the Shilkert inquiry paints a similar picture about the evidence deliberately ignored presented by intelligence agencies to the then UK Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Lies. Outright lies. Of course, knowing that these were all lies means nothing to the people of Iraq, does it? Now, how about John Howard? We've never had a proper inquiry into the circumstances in which he led Australia into the invasion and occupation of Iraq. And the only parliamentary inquiry into the 
the WMD intelligence failure, wasn't given full access to the materials provided to the government. Now, at the very best, at the very, very best, we can say that Howard was guilty of the same gross misjudgment as Blair, and the fault lay as much with their own eagerness for war as any intelligence failure about the threat posed by Saddam Hussein. And Howard, of course, was guilty of making Australia less safe from the threat of terrorism. Howard failed on the most basic responsibility of any leader, keeping his country safe. So the three of them, Bush, Blair and Howard, and other Western leaders like the Spanish Prime Minister Jose Maria Aznar, they are responsible for one of the... Oh... One of the biggest mass slaughters of post-war history. A death toll of Iraqi civilians numbering in the hundreds of thousands, as well as creating conditions for the rise of the Islamic State and the dominance of Iran in that region. They're responsible for all those deaths of army personnel from USA, UK and Australia, apart from the ongoing human toll. None of them have ever faced any accountability for deliberate lying about the need for an attack on Iraq. They still walk free, uncensured, apparently untroubled by the colossal disaster they bequeathed us. If there's no holding to account for an act of mass murder costing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives, resulting from deliberate lies one that's cost the West trillions in resources, one that continues to claim the lives of Iraqis and Syrians, former Western military personnel and Western civilians, then what accountability exists at all for political elites? Under what democratic system does John Howard escape even an inquiry into his actions? Overall, we think we're pretty good at seeing lies now, aren't we? I mean, we live in the 21st century. We're more sceptical. We're less trusting. Most of us recognise nonsense when we see it. I wonder, how do we account for the fact that almost everyone in public life has the same set of preposterous beliefs? Nearly everyone in the media across the entire political spectrum seems to accept that economic growth can and should continue indefinitely on a finite planet. Almost all believe that we should take action to protect life on Earth only when it is cost-effective. Even then, we should avoid compromising the profits of legacy industries. We all seem to believe that something called the economy takes priority over our life support systems. And they further believe that the unhindered acquisition of enormous wealth by a few people is somehow acceptable. They believe that taxes sufficient to break the cycle of accumulation and redistribute extreme wealth are unthinkable. They believe that permitting a handful of offshore billionaires to own the media, set the political agenda and tell us where our best interests lie is just fine. They believe that we should pledge unquestioning allegiance to a system we call capitalism, although they're unable to define it, let alone predict where it might be heading. No terror or torture is required to persuade people to fall into line with these crazed beliefs. 
somehow our system of organised lying has created an entire class of politicians, officials, media commentators, cultural leaders, academics and intellectuals who nod along with them. We have a truth crisis and it's much deeper and wider than we care to admit. It's systemic and just about universal. 3CR Bella Chow was originally sung by the Mondina workers in protest against the harsh working conditions in northern Italy. A Mondina worker was a seasonal rice paddy worker, a woman, of course, in Italy's Po Valley from the late 19th century to the first half of the 20th. The work of Monda weeding was widespread in northern Italy in that time. The work consisted of removing weeds growing in rice fields and it took place during the flooding of the fields from the end of April to the beginning of June every year when the delicate shoots had to be protected from temperature differences between day and night. The Monda was an extremely tiring task carried out mostly by women of the poorest social classes the most economically disadvantaged women from Emilia-Romagna, from Veneto, Lombardy and Piedmont. And they worked up in northern Italy, mostly around Vercelli. Now, we've got an image, when you think of rice paddies and women working, you think of Asian women working in rice paddies. Well, that's the image that comes to my mind. The workers spend their work days with their bare feet in water up to their knees and their back bit for hours. They wear a scarf and a big hat with a broad brim, of course. In northern Italy, these atrocious working conditions, the long hours and very, very low pay led to constant dissatisfaction and at times to rebellious movements and riots in the early years of the 20th century. What made it really hard in these struggles was the abundance of clandestine workers, clandestine workers ready to compromise even further the already low wages just to get work. These clandestine workers were the crumiri, the strike breakers. We have another word for that. Anyway, the demands of the protesting riots were finally satisfied between 1906 and 1909, when all the communes of, of the province of Vecelli were required to abide by the eight-hour restriction. And no padrone could make these women work more than eight hours a day. I know that Balachau is associated with World War II and the Partisans, but I like to think of it when it was first sung by those women working in the paddy fields, the Mondine, and how they fought for their eight-hour day. And here's Milva, the popular artist from the 1960s, singing Bella Chow. Sai mi tocca e fra gli insetti 
le zanzare oh, bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao e tra gli insetti e le zanzare duro lavoro mi tocca il capo in piedi con il suo bastone oh, bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao il capo in piedi con il suo bastone e noi curve lavoro e noi curve a lavoro il capo in piedi col suo bastone oh bella ciao bella ciao bella ciao 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 il capo in piedi col suo bastone Ciao, bella, ciao, bella, ciao, 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 mamma mia, oh che tormento, io ti invoco ogni doma, ed ogni ora che ti passiamo, oh bella, ciao, bella, ciao, bella, ciao, 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 ed ogni ora che ti passiamo, noi perdiamo la gioventù, ma verrà un giorno che tutte quante Bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 ma verrà il giorno che tutte quante lavoreremo in libertà, ma verrà il giorno che tutte quante lavoreremo in libertà, ma verrà il giorno che tutte quante lavoreremo in libertà. words of the Mondina lyrics, there are all sorts of stuff about the horrific conditions from the insects and mosquitoes to the boss's stick, the bastone, with which he would hit the curved backs of the workers. What a job, eh? Anyhow, in the 1940s, the song was adopted and revised by the anti-fascist resistance, and since then, Ballet Chow's been translated numerous times, performed by dozens of famous musicians used at protests all over the world. Balachau is a metaphor for freedom. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the ride. See you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, it's cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast. And I leave you with another popular anti-fascist song, La Brigata Garibaldi.
Puerto Rico, 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 Puerto